Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand for our opening prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. O heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, Come and dwell in us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Thank you, Father Joseph. Please join me in welcoming back Deacon Keith Fournier. Thank you. Just by way of reminder, and for those who weren't here last week, last week we spoke on the foundations of the moral teaching of the Catholic Church. And I brought, as I often do, sort of a show-and-tell, a group of books. I'm going to quickly go through them again because I think it's important for us to know the resources, the tremendous resources that we have in order for us to grow in virtue, to grow in holiness, and to be faithful to our vocation no matter what our state in life. And so I brought them with me again, except I forgot one. First of all, the sacred scripture, the canon. And the word canon itself means measuring stick. And of course, we've been living in a time of great renewal of a love for the sacred scripture and the church as mother and teacher calling all of the faithful to fall in love with this word because it reveals to us the living word, the word incarnate, the one in whose image we are being recreated. So the scripture, of course, that is the greatest source of understanding ethics and moral teaching. In addition, we have this great resource. I use the big version of the Catechism of the Catholic Church for obvious reasons. Since I turned 50 years old, I've had to have these lenses, if you will, and it's bigger print. But the Catechism is such a treasure, and I continually emphasize whenever I speak how important it is for Catholics to not only have it, but to spend time in it. And for those of you who have, you will agree what a resource it is. We've had catechisms in the church from the very beginning. The first catechism was the Didache, and I know you've heard about the Didache. Uh, and we've had catechisms to help us grow in a deeper understanding of what it truly means to be a Christian, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And this catechism is so well arranged, footnoted, that you can spend hours just reading the sources that are cited. The index is so well arranged. And the portion on the moral life is found mostly in the section called Life in Christ. I also brought with me two examples of another great resource we have as Catholic Christians. Letters from the successors of Peter. And I explained last week, and once again I'll explain, we have had letters from the beginning of the church from bishops. The word encyclical itself means circulating. 
And in the first centuries, of course, there were no printing presses, certainly no emails, no internet. And so the letters would be written and they would circulate among the faithful. Some of those letters, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made it into the canon of the New Testament from Peter and from Paul and uh, James and John. Some of them didn't, but nonetheless, they're tremendously inspiring and inspired. And the early patristic sources, the early fathers, is such a great resource for us. We have had in our day and age the great gift of Blessed John Paul II and now Benedict the Builder, as I like to call him, and what a treasure he is. But two letters in particular that I held up, one an encyclical letter, the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, which of course has become really the manifesto for the pro-life movement. And I have to tell you, in the years I've been involved in that movement, and it's been decades, many of our evangelical Protestant friends have worn and torn copies of this beautiful letter. It's treasure. But it's about more than just the pro-life movement. It really is about the moral life. It's in this letter that Blessed John Paul gave us such poignant phrases to understand the current climate we live in as culture of death, culture of life. In this letter, he warned of the death of true freedom. And then, of course, his letter on the moral life, the splendor of truth, really the Magna Carta of the moral life, in which, in a way very reminiscent of the early fathers, he uses a biblical story as a framework for helping us understand our call to continually progress in conversion, to be transformed, to be renewed, to grow in the life of grace and virtue. And he uses the encounter between the rich young man and Jesus. And the rich young man went away sad because he made the wrong choice. And that is really the heart of this letter, is this extraordinary understanding that the church presents to us if we're going to really understand the moral life. And that is the importance of freedom. We have been created in the image of God. And at the very core, the epicenter, if you will, of that, is that we have the capacity to choose. And in our choosing, we not only affect the world around us, we change ourselves. In a sense, we become what we choose. Uh, Blessed John Paul and the Catechism refer to one of the beautiful quotes from Gregory of Nyssa, Cappadocian father. And I read it last week, but just a brief reminder, or for those who weren't here, your first exposure. Human life is always subject to change. It needs to be born ever anew. But here, birth does not come about by a foreign intervention, as in the case with bodily beings. It is the result of a free choice. Thus we are, in a certain way, our own parents, creating ourselves as we will by our decisions. The heart of Catholic moral teaching is an understanding, a high understanding of freedom. And my talk last night was, or last week was entitled Fractured Freedom and Human Flourishing. And what I explained is that as a result of sin, which is a wrong choice, our capacity to choose rightly was fractured. And it can only be healed through the splint of the cross and through our cooperation with grace. 
and that as we cooperate with grace, as we take full advantage of our life in the church, which is the body of Christ, and grow in grace, our freedom is restored. Now, the Catechism has a lot to say about freedom and life in Christ. I even gave you some assignments last week. Those who are watching the CD perhaps could undertake those assignments. But one of the passages that I think is extraordinary is that mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. What we choose matters. Authentic freedom has a moral constitution. There is no true freedom, blessed John Paul wrote in another one of his letters, Faith and Reason, unless we choose what is good and what is true. That's when freedom flourishes. In the service of what is good and what is just and what is true. St. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 1 of his letter, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And so we spent almost an hour examining life in Christ and examining what the catechism breaks open for us in understanding how freedom is healed through the redemption of Jesus Christ, through the incarnation, the saving life, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and how we can cooperate with grace and grow in happiness, in virtue, and in freedom. That's a quick summary of last week. Now, in the midst of it all, when I opened up the questions, there was an avalanche of interest, it seems, in another aspect of the moral life, and that is social teaching. So I'm going to spend time on that tonight. Before I do, just a couple of other resources. In my talk last week, I referred a lot to Servais Pinkers, the great Dominican moral theologian, who I highly recommend. And this is probably the most important work of his. It's called The Sources of Christian Ethics. And Pinkers, in really breaking open the Second Vatican Council's teaching on the moral life, Blessed John Paul's insights, and reaching back to the early fathers, gave a whole understanding of freedom. He talked about the difference between the freedom for excellence and the freedom of indifference. And by freedom for excellence, he meant the Christian vision, a robust, thick vision of freedom. That in our freedom, we can become more and more and more like Jesus Christ and experience the human flourishing that is meant to be a part of our Christian vocation. So I highly recommend this book as a resource. It's excellent. And of course, I held up the Second Vatican Council. The documents of the Second Vatican Council are a treasure, rightly understood, and we all know the dangers of the so-called spirit of Vatican II, but rightly understood. And fortunately, we have had in the last two popes in particular great teachers to help us understand the treasure that these documents are. I quoted extensively last week from Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, but so much of this council was dedicated to a deeper understanding of the human vocation and the moral life. In fact, this council called for a renewal of moral theology in its document on the renewal of the priesthood. And much of the good theological work since the council has been in that renewal. Yes, we've had problems, a lot of problems, but fortunately they've been exposed 
And the good news is we are witnessing a great renewal in moral theology in the Catholic Church and some wonderful theologians who are doing very good work. Several years ago, I spoke at a gathering of Catholic leaders. The participants included men and women from every walk of life who understand the implications of their faith on social and cultural, political and economic participation and really want to live what Pope Benedict calls a morally coherent life. They rejected, as we all reject, what the Council warned of, the separation between faith and life. In fact, the Council said that was the greatest error of our age. The men and women at this meeting were good Catholics, very sincere and very serious about not only living the Catholic faith, but infusing the culture with the values informed by that faith. They were from various walks of life, the academy, the political arena, business, philanthropy, media, medicine, law, and justice. And I was asked to speak on Catholics and political participation. And I insisted in that talk, as I always do, that at the very foundation of our social participation as Catholic Christians, that includes politics, economics, culture, all of it, must be the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. In fact, I said that it was critical that we who were Catholics never lose sight of the importance of the term social justice, rightly understood. Now, there was a particular individual who got extremely incensed when I used the term social justice. I could see it in his eyes. And as I continued to talk, he got increasingly angrier as the talk unfolded. And the reason was because, sadly, the term social justice and the term social teaching and the term social doctrine has all too often been co-opted, mostly by the political left. So he suggested in a question and answer session that we just get rid of the term. Just get rid of it. And he asked me for my thoughts. I strongly disagreed. In fact, I insisted we take the term back from those who have stolen it, those on the right or those on the left, and that it was up to the people in that room to recover what it truly means. This is what I want to speak of tonight. I'm well aware of the co-opting of the term social justice and social doctrine, and so is the leadership of the Catholic Church. She has rightly condemned the errors found in versions of what was called liberation theology and other errant politicized efforts to usurp the term social justice. However, the church has not stopped using the term social justice and social doctrine, and neither should we. Now, I have another resource with me today, which I held up last week, the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. Write that down. The Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. The social doctrine of the church is not only for Catholics or other Christians or even just religious people. It's for all people and for all nations. It's offered by the Catholic Church for all who seek to build a truly human and a truly just civil society. All who want to promote the true common good. The teaching is called social because it speaks to human society and to the formation and the role and the rightful place of social institutions. 
It offers truths and principles that can be known by all men and women because they're revealed in the natural law, expounded upon in Revelation. The social doctrine, the social teaching of the Catholic Church is neither left nor right, liberal nor conservative in the common political parlance of our age. As regularly repeated in church teaching, the church walks the way of the person, as Jesus did, and is an expert in humanity. And as the body of Christ, she continues the redemptive mission of the Lord in its fullest expression, part of which is a social expression. Now, last week we talked about the moral life from the perspective of our own progress in virtue. And if you recall, I used paragraph 22 from Gaudium et Spes, spent a good 10 minutes going through it and unpacking it. It is just so profound that it is in the mystery of the word made flesh that the mystery of man finds its true meaning. We need to understand that being human means being social and that the social teaching of the church is a division of moral theology. I'm going to read a quote from Blessed John Paul II from another one of his letters called On Social Concerns. It will thus be seen that the questions facing us are above all moral questions, and that neither the analysis of the problem of development as such, nor the means to overcome our present difficulties, can ever ignore this essential dimension. The church's social doctrine is not a third way between liberal capitalism and Marxist collectivism, nor even a possible alternative to other solutions less radically opposed to one another. Rather, it constitutes a category all of its own. It is not an ideology, but rather the accurate formulation of the results of a careful reflection on the complex realities of human existence in society and in the international order, in the light of faith and of the church's tradition. Its main aim is to interpret all of these realities, determining their conformity with or divergence from the lines of the gospel teaching on man and on his vocation, a vocation which is at once earthly and transcendent. Its aim, the aim of the social teaching, is to guide Christian behavior. It therefore belongs to the field not of ideology, but of theology, and particularly moral theology. Prior to 2004, the social teaching of the Catholic Church referred to the teachings found in the sacred scripture, expounded upon in the Christian tradition, developed in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, explained within contemporary encyclical letters and apostolic letters and exhortations, and wonderfully summarized in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But there was a problem. Many people had not read these sources and had not immersed themselves in these sources. So what claimed to be the social teaching of the Catholic Church oftentimes became, in reality, the spin of self-styled experts with political agendas. Most of the time, sadly, left-wing agendas. People who could quote encyclicals. Oftentimes, they'd even use the Latin titles of those encyclicals. They'd proof text them. And unfortunately, sometimes, they'd use them to promote their own political and economic ideologies. 
On April 2nd, 2004, the Memorial St. Francis of Paola, Cardinal Martino, the president of the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, released this book. Everything changed. It can be found online. All you have to do is Google Compendium of the Social Doctor of the Catholic Church. It can be purchased. And as you can tell, I recommend you purchase it. I happen to like books. I like to feel them. I like to be able to go to them on the shelf. The social teaching of the church confronts what Pope Benedict XVI properly called, right before he ascended the chair of Peter, the current dictatorship of relativism. Relativism as a philosophy basically says there is no truth. Oh, you've heard it. You've seen it. Your truth is not my truth, is not your truth, which means there is no truth. Whereas the Catholic faith proclaims there are unchangeable truths which can be known. And that, in fact, truth has been revealed and has a face, the face of Jesus Christ. Social teaching deals with these truths and their social application. For example, at the foundation of all Catholic social teaching is that every single man and woman and child on the face of the earth has been created in the image of God and therefore has an inherent dignity. This is what we mean by the dignity of human life from conception all throughout life up to and including natural death. This is not a single issue. This is a foundation. Because without the fundamental right to life, there are no other rights. Rights are not ethereal concepts floating around somewhere. Rights are goods of the human person. There has to be a living human person to not only receive those rights, but exercise them. And so when we as Catholics insist on the dignity of every human life, we have to understand this is not about a political issue. It's about a framework for how we view the structure of reality itself, a worldview. Every human life, whether that life be in the first home of the womb, which is the first home of the whole human race, a wheelchair, a jail cell, a hospital room, a hospice, a senior center, or a soup kitchen, the dignity of human life is the pole star of Catholic social doctrine. Another truth is that marriage is between one man and one woman, intended for life and ordered toward the bearing and raising of children in the family. And that the family is God's plan. It's the first vital cell of society. And as Christians, we understand as well, it's the domestic church. It's the first church, the first school, the first economy, the first mediating institution. Marriage and the family and society founded upon it is another foundational principle within Catholic social doctrine. And it is not some social construct which can be redefined by courts or legislatures in spite of what cultural revolutionaries in our own day and age are insisting. In addition to that, marriage is not a word we can or ever will give up. Marriage is what it is, ontologically, to use a philosophical term, and it cannot be changed. It's the foundation for the entire social order. 
Another social truth found in the social doctrine of the church is that all human persons, because we're created in the image of God, are created for relationship. The God whom we proclaim and profess and the church teaches is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a dynamic relationship of love, perfect love, which brings perfect unity. So we are created in his image. We were made to give ourselves away in love. This is why, as I mentioned last week, when you read the Genesis account, it's interesting that as God rested on each day, he said, it is good, except for one day after he fashioned Adam, and he said, it is not good for man to be alone because man cannot be fully whom he is without another. We were made to give ourselves away in love, created for relationship, called the human community. And we can never really fully experience human flourishing outside of social relationships, because it's in those relationships that we are perfected, that we grow, that we learn to love. We are by nature and by grace made for these relationships. So Catholic social doctrine does not begin with the isolated atomist individual, but with the family. Now, as we progress tonight, and perhaps in the question and answer session, that has implications in the political arena as well. Catholic social doctrine rejects the notion of freedom, which begins and ends with the isolated individual, with the person as the measure of liberty. It asserts instead that authentic human freedom always must be exercised within a moral constitution. Otherwise, it becomes a counterfeit. And that we do, in fact, have an obligation in solidarity to one another. We really are our brothers and sisters keepers. Catholic social doctrine also offers a lot of principles to help us order our life together in societies. It doesn't propose, for example, particular economic theories. It doesn't endorse a particular political structure. Again, the church walks the way of the person. It proposes a new and a true humanism, a vision of the human person called to love, called to social relationship called to a way of life that reflects the image of God. So, for example, though it doesn't endorse a particular economic theory, it insists that every economic order be at the service of the human person, promote human freedom, human flourishing, and the family. And yes, we are called to give a love of preference, a special love, sometimes called a preferential option to the poor and the needy, because they're created in the image of God. And we see, for example, in Matthew chapter 25, that in a very special way, Jesus identifies with the poor. However, that call to give a love of preference, to solidarity with the poor and the needy, also has to be applied to another principle in Catholic social doctrine, the principle of subsidiarity which says that governing is best at the smallest practicable level. It's a bottom-up approach to how we order the social arena. So the family is the first government. 
And any government over the family must defer to and respect the family and give help. That's what subsidium means to the family. Catholic social teaching, therefore, rejects all forms of collectivism, be they from the left or from the right, because it dehumanizes. It has principles that need to be applied by you and me in our work in the social order. For example, the Catholic Church has stood strong, particularly in the 1900s, against the materialism of the atheistic Marxist system. But it's also cautioned when it's confronted with a form of liberal capitalism that there can also be a kind of materialism and economism which values capital over human persons, which values acquiring over being. These are all truths and principles that we are now called to take, understand, immerse ourselves in, allow our minds to be renewed. St. Paul said to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then taking these principles, go into the social order and do what we can to humanize it, to elevate it. Now, of course, there are two extremes. One, the utopian extreme, that we can never create heaven and earth. Of course we can't. But the other is to withdraw in the wrong kind of way. Draw up a drawbridge. We are called to continue the redemptive mission of Jesus. And so it's important to spend some time now, if we can, looking at the sources of the social teaching in order to come to understand what it means to continue the redemptive mission of Jesus what it means to talk about the social implications of the moral life. I want to read a couple of excerpts from an ancient document. Uh, it's a favorite, it seems, in uh, contemporary church documents. It's cited a lot. And it can be found right on the Vatican website. It's a letter, and there's a lot of speculation about who wrote it. We don't really know, except whoever wrote it was Christian. And it was written to an inquirer, a pagan inquirer, named Diogenetus. I'm going to read a section from it. He's writing to this pagan inquirer who's intrigued by the life of the early Christians. And he says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is like unto a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. Now, let me stop there for a second. 
I say this all the time. I think it's important for us to realize. Because I hear it a lot. I heard it through all the years of being an activist, lawyer, and the like. That this is the most difficult time we've ever been in. It's simply not true. This is not the first culture of death that the church has gone into. In fact, this is what we do. We go into cultures of death precisely in order to convert them, to transform them from within. This reference, and this letter, by the way, is probably second century. It may be the latter part of the first century. And notice what he said. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. Now, what he's referring to, see, back then they had primitive forms of abortion, but they weren't as capable as we are of being as treacherous as we are, reaching into the womb. So they had another way to deal with unwanted babies. They left them out on rocks for slave traders or the birds of prey. And what the writer of this letter is saying is that Christians don't do that. In addition, they share their meals, but not their wives. The lifestyle of the early Christians was distinctive and as a result it was magnetic. Many years ago there was a book written by a, a sociologist named Rodney Stark, I think it was called The Rise of Christianity, and one of his claims, and well documented, was that it was this lifestyle that helps us to understand how the church grew from being such a small group, a sect within Judaism, to transforming the world of its time. A lifestyle a way of living. The writer goes on, they live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but they are raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. I could keep going, but let me just grab a few more. It's a beautiful letter. To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world. At the end, and I recommend you Google this, it's called Letter to Diogenetus. He says this, such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. The writer of this letter understood something, and we see it in the biblical text. Jesus refers to us as being called to be salt, leaven, light, seed. We have a mission in the world. It's no accident that probably one of the most important documents of the Second Vatican Council is called the Pastoral Constitution of the Church in the Modern World. We are in the world to continue the redemptive mission of Jesus. One of the terms that the early Christians used to refer to the church was that the church was the new world. And I think that's a very helpful way of understanding our missionary task. You see, when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his body and we begin to live in the new world. Another phrase they use is the world in the course of transfiguration. And we go into this world with a purpose, 
to bring all men and women and children into the new world. And through our life in this world, to raise it up as leaven, as light, as salt. This is part of what we need to get our arms around to understand the social mission of the church. We are not going to create a utopia on earth. We, we know that. We have very real struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The church is not the kingdom. She is, to use a term from the council, the seed of the kingdom, making the kingdom present. So we will always have that struggle. But nonetheless, we cannot retreat from our mission in the world. Why? Because God still loves the world so much that he sends his only son. And how does he do that? Through the church. And that means you and me. Social teaching is at the heart of understanding the Christian vocation and the moral life. The heart of understanding that we are not isolated, ever. And that what sin did within us, dividing us within, sin did in the world. And what grace does, integrating us, the church is called to do in the world to bridge those divisions, and to reveal God's plan for the world that he still loves. Jesus came, the compendium says, to bring integral salvation, one which embraces the whole person and all mankind and opens up the wonderful prospect of divine filiation. One aspect of this integral salvation is the social order. Christian faith and the Christian mission is not simply about saving souls, although it is. But remember, redemption will not be complete until the whole person is redeemed. We'll be raised from the dead, given a body like his, living in a new heaven and a new earth. Redemption is not complete until the fullness of salvation of the entire human person, body, soul, and spirit, is experienced. And that's why in the compendium we read these words. At the dawn of this third millennium, the church does not tire of proclaiming the gospel that brings salvation and genuine freedom even to temporal realities. The social doctrine of the church is rooted in a Christian anthropology and a Christian cosmology. It addresses the fabric of all social relationships between persons and families and communities and nations and, yes, even the international order. And in an age of false humanisms, the Catholic Church acclaims that it is in Jesus Christ that we find a true and an authentic humanism. So where do we find the roots of this teaching? And then I'll wrap it up and open it up to questions and answers. We find it, of course, in the scriptures. In fact, if we go back to the beginning, which is what the book of Genesis means, we find right within the doctrine of creation the clear beginning of the social doctrine of the church. We see in the account of the garden and the fall the very core of understanding what's really going on in the world. It reveals that we were created out of love, in love, and for love 
for relationship with God, with one another, and with the created order. And that something happened, and that something was, we talked about it last week, sin. An abuse of the freedom to choose is one of the definitions out of the catechism. And when our first parents chose against God and against love, disintegration began. Separation from God, separation from one another, separation from even the created order. And we see throughout the whole Old Testament, God didn't give up. He continued to call us back to him. He chose a people, the nation of Israel, through whom he chose to reveal himself to the world. And the whole story of salvation history in the Old Testament is the story of a loving God through the law, through the prophets. But the law of sin and death, as St. Paul called it, the power of sin was too great. So in the fullness of time, St. Paul wrote to the Galatians, God came, born of a woman, born under a law, to free those under the law. And in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, creation began again. So we see the roots of the social teaching reaching all the way back to Genesis. But it's in the great event that changed all human history, the incarnation of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Word made flesh, we find the fullness of truth concerning the human vocation, the invitation to all men and women into a relationship with God, the invitation to all men and women to find true human happiness and flourishing, and that that relationship is meant to live, be lived out within the church. So the New Testament is filled with social teaching. For example, the Sermon on the Mount contains the very essence of all the moral and social teaching of the church. Last week we looked at it in terms of personal morality, if you will, huh? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And remember I mentioned that blessed could be translated happy. And that as we live the Christian life, we really begin to experience happiness. That is meant to have a social application as well, because if we really love God, we are called to love those whom he loves. And who does he love? The whole world. We find the roots of Christian social teaching in the early fathers of the church. Bishop John Chrysostom talked about the sacrament of the brother, some of the Cappadocians and some of the early patristic sources. But the term social teaching is often associated with Pope Leo XIII's on capital and labor and the whole trajectory of modern papal encyclicals. This is why I think the compendium is so vitally important to us, because we now have a source to go to in order to understand social teaching. It begins with these words, to the people of our time, our traveling companions, the church offers this social doctrine. In fact, when the church fulfills her mission of proclaiming the gospel, she bears witness to man in the name of Christ, to his dignity and his vocation to the communion of persons. Now let me conclude with a couple of important principles to understand about social doctrine. First of all, principles itself. The social doctrine of the church offers us a set of principles that we are then called to take and work into the leaven of culture. So we should participate in the political arena utilizing those principles. I mentioned a few of them tonight. The dignity of human life. Some people say that's a non-negotiable issue. 
That's one way of looking at it. A better way of looking at it is not an issue at all. It's the foundation of every concern. Because, in fact, without human life, there can be no rights. Another principle we have to keep in mind, and this is important, we talked about it last week, is that what the church teaches on social doctrine is rooted in an understanding of the natural law. We are all too often backed in the corner when we engage in political participation with this argument that our positions on life and on marriage and on family are simply religious and translated, sadly, through the current approach, particularly in the West, that means they should be kept within a church building. Oh, that's your religious position. We have to understand that the teaching of the church and the dignity of the human person, though it's certainly expounded upon through revelation, is rooted in the natural law, a law which can be known through the exercise of reason to all men and women. And we make the claim that the dignity of human life should bind every human society, not just religious societies. And we all know it's true. I mean, let's face it, we all know it's true. We know the child in the womb is our neighbor. You don't even hear people who support the culture of death making arguments these days that the child in the womb is anything but a human person. They make these awful arguments, like we spoke of last week, a counterfeit notion of freedom, that somehow we have some perceived right to take their life before they're born. But our position on the dignity of life is rooted in the natural law. That's not simply a religious position. The same is true on marriage and family. This is why when we engage in political action, we need to understand where we come up with these positions. So we don't get backed into a corner. Now, I didn't bring one of the books I had with me last week. Remember, for those who were here, I recommended a wonderful book called The First Grace by Russell Hittinger, which is a good presentation on the natural law approach to making our arguments. All of this is a way of sort of understanding moral theology as it's applied in the rough and tumble of our daily life. We are not simply called to perfect ourselves, which we can't do on our own anyway, but we are called into the world to continue the redemptive mission of Jesus. And part of that implies a social obligation, a social responsibility. Now, to throw it open to a couple of questions. This has political implications, it has economic implications, and a whole lot of other implications. And the issues started flying last week. Issues such as HHS mandates, issues such as many others. And we can open up. We have a few moments, huh? Yes, I think we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back for Q&A. We'll come back for Q&A on any of those questions. But what I wanted to do was to at least lay out the groundwork of really what is meant by the social teaching of the Catholic Church. Thank Thank you, you. Deacon Keith Fournier. I had somebody come up and and had a question. They didn't want to give it from the microphone. Sure, go ahead. But is there such a thing as a social sin? That was the question. Uh, The church speaks of structures of sin. All sin is personal, and in a sense, all sin is social. Uh, Blessed John Paul in Reconciliation and Penance does a wonderful treatment of the social implications of every sin because we sin against God, 
and we also sin against our neighbor and ourselves. But the term structure of sin is a term by which the church is trying to help us understand that some sins, an example is racism, can actually get embedded in structures. That doesn't make it any less personal. Okay, racism is a sin. And that's what's meant by structures of sin. Okay? It can get very misunderstood. Like so much in the social arena can get misunderstood. We are responsible for our own actions. That's at the heart of moral theology. But there are structures that can actually come about through repeated sin. I mean, the culture of death is an example of a structure of sin, right? I mean, after decades of failing to recognize the dignity of every human person, and most particularly our first neighbor in the womb, what's happened? The sin has become embedded structurally. So this is what is meant by the concept of structures of sin or social sin. Deacon Fournier, uh, excellent talk. Question that always is bothering so many of us. We have so many Catholic politicians uh -huh. who have completely lost the teachings of the church. Where do we put the blame? Is it the lack of poor catechesis uh, with them, or is it their desire for an attraction to relativism, or is it just the devil? Or I mean, where do we put it? Where do we put the blame? Well, how about all of the above? All right. I would rather focus, and I'll handle the, the blame issue, but I'd rather focus on how we should respond to this problem. The best way we can respond to this problem is by being better Catholics ourselves, by taking the time to really understand what the church teaches, inform our own conscience properly, okay? catechize ourselves like you're doing here, and then do something about the current mess we have, because you're right. Now, for Blessed John Paul and now Pope Benedict have used a phrase, the new evangelization. It's a wonderful phrase, but it's sometimes misunderstood. Okay. The new evangelization, for the most part, applies to Catholics in the pews and to those nations that were formerly Christian. And it's the church acknowledging what we all know to be true, that we have a lot of uncatechized and even unevangelized Catholics. And then there's mission agentes. We have a mission to the nations. But when we use the term new evangelization, this is why it's become such a priority of this pontificate to the point of establishing a dicastery office dedicated to the new evangelization. They're going to have an entire bishop synod on the new evangelization. What your deacon is doing here with this ministry is a new evangelization apostolate. What it's doing is preparing the next generation of public servants and politicians. That's what we really need. Yes, there's a mess out there, and we've got a lot of unfaithful Catholics in public life. And, you know, God bless our bishops. They've done a lot to try to deal with that. But I think what we ought to do is perhaps become faithful Catholics in public life and also point out the ones who are remaining faithful, and they do exist. Chris Smith, Rick Santorum, and, I, you know, we could list off a bunch of them. Thank God they exist and affirm them. Uh, and do what we can as Catholics, and particularly the lay faithful. This is the turf of the lay faithful. You know, what we need today in the arena of politics more than anything else is a new Catholic action led by lay men and women who take the social teaching of the church, understand it, and are able to come up with a new Catholic action. Run for public office. Do what you can. Yes, you have to expose the people who are, you know, unfaithful, but Frankly, I think there's too many circular firing squads around these days. They're becoming increasingly irrelevant. 
What's really important, I think, is that we have a new generation of Catholics who really understand the teachings of the church and realize that these teachings bring life. And in fact, if they were applied in the social arena, they would help build a truly just society. One of the things that I try to emphasize, you know, that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, the fellow who was quite distressed with me several years ago. I have to tell you, he got more distressed as the talk went on. At one point, he actually charged at me from the floor. He really did. Now, he wasn't going to attack me, and I am a kickboxer, so if he had attacked me. <laughs> but he was so incensed. You know, that was several years ago. Since then, we've had a meal together and laughed and the like. But we have to move beyond even the common political terminology. Liberal, conservative, neoconservative. I mean, it has value. But I like to say it this way. Catholic is the noun. Catholic is the noun. That's who we are. Now, certainly, in common political terminology, we're not going to come out on the liberal side on most issues, huh? But we ought to be very careful about these labels. We want to remember those pillars that are in the Catholic social teaching, those principles, and then based on that, inform our positions. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. I've been in meetings because I've been involved. I'm a lawyer by training, constitutional lawyer, and I've been actively involved in um, faithful citizenship efforts for decades. And oftentimes, that involves working with Christians of other traditions. Uh, I wrote a book many years ago before it was cool to talk about evangelicals and Catholics. <laughs> okay. But now, fortunately, evangelicals and Catholics are working together a lot. And just recently, last year, in fact, I was in a meeting in Washington, D.C., and there were a lot of significant evangelical leaders there. And we were all talking about how we can build a culture of life together. That phrase has become so accepted in the broader Christian community. And I began talking about the dignity of the human person as being more than an issue, that it's a foundation, that it's rooted in the natural law, which can be known by all men and women, and that we need to develop natural law arguments. You would have thought that I, people were just mesmerized. And one of the people in the room, and it wasn't because I'm some great poobah, I'm not. I was just using the catechism, for goodness sakes. That's all I was using. But I wasn't citing the catechism. I was using the teaching and the beauty of Catholic social teaching. And one of the people who remain unnamed raised his hand and said, where did you get that? And I finally said, the catechism of the Catholic Church. We have a treasure here. A lot of our Christian friends, you see, if you're living in, as we are, a many people say post-Christian, I prefer pre-Christian age, you can't just quote chapter and verse from the Bible. It isn't going to work when people don't accept the Bible as having any moral authority, which is why it's important, I think, that Catholics understand the natural law tradition and are able to articulate these positions from a natural law base. We also need to understand that, for example, when we talk about subsidiarity, yes, the American founders were brilliant, and the Bill of Rights, uh, the Declaration was the birth certificate of the nation. But, you know, the founders came out of a Western Christian tradition. And the concept of unalienable rights endowed by a creator, yes, they're in the Declaration, but they go way back. And as Catholics, that's the tradition we come out of. So, for example, when we argue for subsidiarity in its application, we end up being small government oftentimes, huh? Bottom-up kinds of people. But it isn't because we think government is intrinsically bad. We don't. Okay, government begins in the home. In fact, it begins with God who governs. 
And the real question we should ask as Catholics is, is government good in a double sense of the word? Is it efficient? Is it truly just? Okay? And so we end up being limited or small government, but not because we're anti-government. Now, here's where I'll get really controversial. This is why we have to be very careful. And I know there are Catholics who purport to be libertarians. And I know many of them. And some very good people doing good work. But I still maintain, much to their chagrin, that philosophically, the Catholic vision of the human person as created for social relationships and the libertarian vision is very, very different. So anyway, we need to be able to articulate our positions and understand where they come from. We do have a question from Denise writing in from Sarasota, Florida, who asks, could you expand <coughs> on true humanism? Yes. Oftentimes people make these disparaging comments about humanism. We have to be careful. Because really what the church teaches is true humanism. Remember Gaudium et Spes 22 that I used last week, that it is only in the mystery of the word made flesh that the mystery of man takes on full meaning? Christianity is a true humanism because it is, in fact, the message that liberates all men and women. It tells us what the human person has been created to be and can become now when redeemed in Christ. What we're really opposing is atheistic or secularist humanism that has no reference point to God. And so the church uses terms like new and true humanism to refer to the Christian proclamation about the human person. Benedict the Builder has done a great job in, in his encyclicals in, in basically resurfacing this whole understanding of Christianity as a true and a new humanism. And Blessed John Paul wrote a lot about it as well. That's what I mean by new and true humanism. Without reference to God, we cannot be fully human because we were created in his image. So our problem is with secular humanism. A little war story, three decades ago or more, a young brown-haired guy, a lot of hair in my head, was a delegate from Father Mike Scanlon in the early days of Steubenville to a, a conference called the American Congress for Concerned Christian Citizens. I was the only Catholic more than three decades ago. It would later go on to become, quote, the Christian Coalition. But I went to represent Father Mike Scanlon, and I remember being in a room, and in that room, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Bill Bright, some of the greats of evangelical Protestantism in the early days. And they were going on and on and on about humanism and the enemy of humanism. And I made a comment that I said, you know, I think we need to be careful. What we're really opposing is secular humanism. Christianity, properly understood, presents the new and true humanism. Believe it or not, afterwards, a couple of those guys, and I won't mention which ones, wanted to discuss the subject. They had never thought of it that way. Again, we as Catholics have this treasure in terms of being able to articulate the truth that's revealed in the scripture. Jesus is the one who reveals the truly human. Thank you, Deacon Keith. Thank you. God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.